of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today. Here to talk with me about one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Jared Bias. Welcome, Jared. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining. And this is uh, this is uh, kind of an honor for me. I'm a big fan of your show, as I'm sure a lot of people that listen to uh, Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible also are fans of the Bible for normal people, which is... Um, sort of a foundational show, I think, in many of the Christian or uh, progressive Christian uh, circles of podcasting. Folks just know you, and it's because you and Pete have an incredible skill, uh, great conversations, very, very intelligent, and uh, approach these things in a way that is plain spoken enough, I think, that people who aren't necessarily theologically educated can still understand the concepts, can still engage with them and take away stuff um, from those conversations that they can use to build their belief and build their faith or challenge their faith. Or Anyway, I'm gushing. So, uh, before we go into Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? Yeah, so um, I was raised in Texas where you're, you're you're Christian by birth in a lot of ways, culturally. Um, and so that was in not just Christian, but also pretty conservative. So I would have grown up in different denominations, but it would have all been about the same flavor in terms of basic uh, tenets of the faith, inerrancy of scripture, um, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and definitely, I, you know, say a prayer to get saved, to avoid hell, um, sort of basis of, of your faith. And then I went to Liberty University, actually, and uh, got a degree in philosophy and then went to seminary. And in seminary, a lot, I mean, throughout this whole time, my faith had been shifting and recognizing that um, I was more interested in um, the curiosity, the questions, the wonder, the awe, um, more so than the figuring it out, the answers, um, the putting things in a box, um, the neatly packaged things. I, I started to see God as someone who pushes the bounds, who goes before us, who's always out in front of us, um, not one that's lagging behind or asking us to sort of keep things the same. And my view of the Bible changed in seminary as I began to see that the Bible itself um, is progressing and moving forward and reinterpreting itself for new uh, generations of, of followers. And so I just started going down that path. And so today, you know, faith still plays a big part of my life, especially in the work we do with the Bible for normal people. And at the core of that is to help people take their next steps in their, in their faith journey, mm -hmm. um, whatever that looks like for them. You know, it's really interesting um, of the folks that I've uh, either talked to here on the show or in other settings in life that have gone to seminary, um, most of them seem to have come away from that education, not more orthodox, but less orthodox, uh, not more likely to, um, you know, look at the Bible as the inerrant word of God, but more likely to view the Bible as the living word of God, uh, the inspired mm -hmm. word of God. And uh, I think it's really interesting. I mean, the, the, it does seem like the further uh, down into the rabbit hole you go as far as, um, you know, analyzing faith and thinking about Scripture, the more likely you are to come up with 
uh, a belief system and a faith that is more grounded, more solid, less insecure, and less likely to be used as a weapon against other people. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The irony of you know, the, if you if you read the Bible for what it is and not what we hope it would be or what we expect it to be or need it to be, um, yeah, it can change you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really great. Um, you wrote uh, a book that was published a couple of years ago, right? At this mm-hmm. point, was that twenty twenty? Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's called "Love Matters More," right? Yep. So uh, the passage that you opted to discuss with me today is about, of course love. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's great. I mean, we've done a few episodes uh, here and there on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, it, it obviously deserves more. You could do an entire podcast on that section of Scripture alone throughout the different Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, but the commands in, um, in this portion, uh, if you read them across different translations, you don't get a different message. Uh, I love that it's so plain spoken, and it's uh, it's very hard to misconstrue what this what this specific set of commands is. Now, there are a lot of other places in the Bible where uh, we're given commands that are a lot more convoluted and can be used in in much more dubious ways. But um, this one is clear. So uh, why don't we read all the way through it first, and then we'll kind of go back and go line by line. Now, I read from the ESV. What's your preferred translation? Uh, I I often will use either the NRSV or the NIV. Okay. Yeah. The um, Occasionally, if I run into a passage that I find tricky or um, uh, difficult to understand, I'll pull in some of the contemporary English versions, like the voice or the message, and I love them for what they are. Um, they take chances, which is exciting, um, but there's, there's always more kind of editorializing going on when you, um, when you have to rephrase everything in that way, which is, um, adds to the layers of difficulty in really understanding uh, what, the, what the original meaning is. Now, of course, a lot of people get hung up on what that original meaning is, and, um, and it's important to note that this is a bi- the Bible, this is a book written by people who were in a specific historical context, who had different, uh, you know, specific uh, political situations that they were dealing with, and, and oppression and, and violence in its own way that, that um, while it may mirror in some ways what we go through today, it's very, very different. And so, um, you know, I always focus on the red text in the ESV. It's very helpful to say, okay, so Jesus is saying this. Now, of course, did Jesus say it that way? Did Jesus really say it? There's more questions there, but... Um, but I'm still learning, and I'm <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll read through here. The header in the ESV for this section is "Love Your Enemies." You have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, I want to start at the end, uh, 48, because that's the most challenging part of this, right? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
how does that hit you? How does that strike you? How, what does the command to you mean uh, to be perfect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, again, context is so important. And we have to, we live in such a technically accurate culture now that we think of perfection as making no mistakes. Uh, but in that context, the idea of perfection was more relational wholeness um, than it was being accurate about everything and making no mistakes. And so this is really important to understand that we're coming at, we come at it from a very individualistic or atomistic culture. And in the New Testament, it is highly relational and highly connected to relationships with other humans, um, relationships with God. So for me, my first thought is I always translate that be whole Mm. um, is how I think of that in my head. That's really great. Um, I think that love is a complicated topic uh, in the Bible, but love is even more complicated as it plays out in our lives. And I think a lot of people hear the word love, and the first thing they think of is either familial love, uh, friendship, or um, romantic love. Uh, But I think here the call to be perfect in love in the context of this passage uh, perfect love is uh, giving oneself. That's g- the God kind of love. Uh, agape, I think, is the word for it, right? And that is a selfless giving uh, love, one that's not conditional, one that doesn't um, wait for someone to do something for them before they turn around and love someone. Uh, it's not contingent on your value in society. It's not contingent on the kind of person that you are. It is a, it's a selfless love. And that in that way, it's easier for me to understand, of course, a lot of what Jesus is expecting of us in this sermon uh, seems impossible. Uh, if we all followed it to the letter, there'd be a lot of people walking around with one eye. Uh, I think that you, you, you can't necessarily expect yourself to be perfect, but... Uh, if you take this as a command to strive for that, like so much of prayer and so much of faith is striving upward, um, reaching out to God, that uh, it's it's sound advice. At the very least, it's sound advice. Uh, and at the very best, it's a way that we can improve ourselves, improve our relationships, improve our society. Uh, it's really excellent. So, of all the passages of love that discuss love, um, from all the different angles in the Bible. Why did you choose this one? This one haunts me the most. Um, it, it, it is a lot of the other passages about love are generic about the object and what it does for me. This one's the one that also makes me rethink God the most because it actually challenges the idea of what I call the theological calculus. The idea that we... Um, that we can ahead of time determine how God will act toward people. Hmm. Um, it, it cuts against the grain of what uh, Old Testament scholars will call Deuteronomic theology, which is the, an easy way of talking about it is sort of a, the Old Testament version of karma. Okay. Um, so through the through line of so much uh, Old Testament theology is if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Mm-hmm. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. That's how God works. And that's why we want to obey God because then we get blessings. You know, read, I think, Deuteronomy 28 to 32, the blessings and cursings of 
uh, entering the land. So mm-hmm. if you if you enter the land and you obey me, things will go well for you. And if you don't, the curses are pretty egregious in terms of what will happen to you if you don't obey. And yeah. that's that's that Deuteronomic theology. That's that through line. And Jesus here, just like some of those, what we would call the minority voices in the Old Testament, like Ecclesiastes and Job, they're kind of like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> but Jesus outright um, challenges it in this passage to say that God brings rain and goodness on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. That sounds great, but just like when we read the book of Jonah, that also is unsettling mm-hmm. to think about the ramifications of a God who is willing to show mercy and forgiveness even to the evil ones, the unrighteous and the unjust. And that's confusing. I think it, it throws us into um, not having a divine calculus. It makes us have to be wise about navigating a world that's not black and white. That's really interesting. And I, I hadn't really framed it that way in my mind, but I, I love that notion that there there isn't, um, like, like we're taught in most of the Old Testament, there isn't like a cause and effect uh, way that God loves us. That uh, no matter what we're told, uh, earlier on in scripture about, uh, you know, this wagging finger in the sky saying, uh, don't do that or do do that. And if you don't, or you do, or you do, or you don't, you're going to be in trouble. And, uh, and, and the punishments are so, so intense and, and in some cases bizarre. I mean, uh, Jonah's punishment, for example, since you brought him up, is uh, is essentially being dragged down into into the underworld, uh, and then um, once he is brought back out, he's still kind of a petulant little kid, and and in the second time that God has to kind of redress him, uh, God does it by providing shelter, and then taking that shelter away, and and uh, you know meanwhile I'm sure that throughout, you know, this this time period, bad things were happening to the enemies of the chosen people. And and every time that seems to happen, uh, the prophets say it's because they were enemies of God. It's because they worship this other God. It's because they were um, trying to take our land uh, or, or keeping us, even worse, keeping us from invading their land and taking, uh, you know, their property and, and plundering them. Uh, that view of a God that is uh, always ready to punish is one of the most difficult uh, things that I think people have to shake when they're reformulating their faith. I, I don't I don't love the word deconstruction, to be honest. I'm not sure why. There's something about it that just doesn't hit me, right? And I totally respect people that use that phrase to describe themselves and their processes. And I think that more often people should be thinking harder about what they believe. But I was just discussing uh, Nahum uh, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And it starts with, God is a vengeful God. God is an angry God. Uh, You know, God exacts revenge. And if you don't do what God says, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, And what Jesus is saying here is, well, that may be the case. But as as much as God has given you treasure, as much as God has given you uh, blessings, those blessings are on those that you don't like either. And as much as God has given them trouble and has given um, them hard times, God has done the same for you. So maybe this isn't exactly uh, the cause and effect relationship that you um, that you're putting together in your mind. Yeah, and I, if I can, I, I, I want to maybe 
not challenge, just maybe tweak that that interpretation of Jonah a little bit, only because I, I would argue that the fish in Jonah is actually an agent of salvation, mm. um, not an agent of of punishment. And and the whole and it's important because the whole book of Jonah is a is a pushing back or a satire on that idea. Mm-hmm. And and so I actually don't. God is actually thoroughly gracious even to Jonah in the book of Jonah. That's not a, a punishment. And we we see this, not to get into the weeds about it, um, but there's a, there's a number of reasons why we would want to read what happening to Jonah was him getting pushed over the boat and sinking and drowning down into the underworld. And the fish comes at just the right moment to scoop him up mm. and bring him back up as a moment of salvation. The climactic point of chapter two, verse four there, 4a is, um, you know, my life was drifting away and then, but you, O Lord, have brought my life up from the pit. That's the first upward we get since the very beginning of the book. Oh, wow. And everything has been a going down. So it's, and it's, it's of Jonah's own causing. Jonah's running away from Yahweh. And goes down and goes down to Joppa, uh, goes down into the boat, gets goes down into the bottom of the boat, gets thrown over the side of the boat, drifts down into the ocean, drifts down into what it says into the heart of Sheol, into mm-hmm. the heart of the underworld. And then that at the end of chapter two is actually shut out of creation, not by Yahweh, but by Jonah's own doing in some ways. And then the fish is actually this agent of salvation that brings him up from the pit. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That was yeah. No, yeah that, that this is um this is so this is why I'm so glad that you uh, came to join me for the show. But it, and the other exactly thing I wanted that. to say mm-hmm. was it, it's interesting that you brought jo- uh, Nahum one because in our Bibles uh, we have Jonah and then we have Micah and then we have Nahum and they all are addressing Assyria and so Jonah is a is a parable about the mercy that God shows Nineveh and then just two books later, we have Nahum, which if you know uh, the object of, you said the Lord is a jealous God, avenging God, that whole uh, section is about him uh, pouring out wrath on Nineveh Mm -hmm. and making an end to Nineveh. So just two books before God is being gracious and sowing mercy to Nineveh, two books later, God is wiping Nineveh off the face of the earth. And so again, you have this juxtaposition, how did God feel about the Ninevites? We don't have a definitive answer. We have one book that says one thing. We have another book that says another thing, which illustrates this Matthew 5 passage quite well. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a fascinating perspective. I mean, that is, uh, that it, it is to look at those two side by side or, or near each other to say, well, does God think that they are not too far gone and that they can be saved and all that they need is a, a little warning? Or is God jealous and avenging? Uh, and, and will it be all over for them uh, when, when God gets his hands on them? Which is, um, gosh, that's fascinating. Yeah. The, uh, the, the bit about um, it raining, this is kind of what we touched on earlier, that, uh, that God sends, uh, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This would have been very challenging for people at this time, right? This is not a message that they, there was not really a peace and love uh, kind of gospel going around at this time. There was nobody else that was kind of sh- sharing a message like this, right? This is this is groundbreaking. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that the God of the, of the Jews was was seen in this loving and covenantal relationship. So it wasn't that, 
people were always fearful of this God. You know, again, go back to Jonah. What's Jonah's complaint? I knew you were a compassionate God, full of love and mercy, right? That's that's Jonah's beef with God is that God is merciful and loving, right? And that's in our Old Testament. That's in our Hebrew Bible. I think the thing that's groundbreaking is what we've talked about already. It's the the breaking this cause and effect, this theological calculus that religion for most religions, uh, that's one of the fundamental tenets is do good things so you can be blessed and good things will happen to you. Do bad things and you will be cursed and bad things will happen to you. And that gets Mm -hmm. co-opted by religious institutions all the time and it gets corrupted. And so this groundbreaking thing for me isn't that God is loving, it's that God is shows undifferentiated kindness to the just and the unjust and then calls us to do the same. Hmm. You know, that's really one of the major criticisms that I hear about Christianity um, uh, or really any large organized religion is that um, it is sort of this uh, this perverted notion of uh, taking away your your ability to do good things for the sake of doing good, that you're only doing it because you are waiting for your reward, that you're only not actively going out and murdering people because God said to do it, not because it's wrong and because it harms people. Um, That part is a criticism that I can understand, but not because really the scriptures are telling you that. It's because of the way that uh, established churches have have brought that message to the people. And as much as people um, love to pick and choose from the Bible, and as much as people love to take things out of context to get their message across, it does strike me as odd that even Christian churches uh, who, who worship Jesus as God, as the Son of God, as part of God, uh, don't see that message and say, perhaps dialing back our judgment, perhaps dialing back our our anger towards people that don't believe the same as us or, or we see as political enemies um, isn't the move. I, I, uh, I struggle a little bit in this to understand what it means to love your enemy. Uh, I know what it looks like to love my friend. I know what it looks like to love my partner. I know what it looks like to to even love those that are further out in, in professional relationships or or whatever other connection I may have with them. But someone that I am supposedly at odds with, what do you think it looks like for one to love their enemy? Yeah, I think I think it's important. There's a few things I would say. One, interpersonally, I don't think it means that we can't, we shouldn't have boundaries. Mm. And I think that's really important. I, I always think of this quote whenever I talk about this by Prentice Hemphill that says, a boundary is the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm. And so I like that idea is that whatever it means, it can't mean that I have to, to it's not a zero sum game. So if mm-hmm. loving you means harming myself, then I don't think that's an appropriate love. And so to love my enemy does often require a boundary um, where I can love you and me simultaneously. So I think that's the first um, step for me in terms Mm -hmm. of loving our enemies. Um, I think the second thing is it doesn't mean uh, losing our convictions about what we believe and and standing up for things. And, and, you know, this isn't, this isn't a, can't we just all get along uh, call? Um, But I think it is 
about wanting people to flourish and doing what we can within our power to help them flourish. And so the, I like, I've, I don't even remember who said it, but I like the, the notion that I can want you well fed and I can even feed you, but that doesn't mean I have to invite you to my table um, mm. in that sense. And so I think that's really helpful and important. Um, and some people do have that capacity. Some people do have the capacity to invite their enemies to the table and to have appropriate boundaries and to have conviction and not, you know, give on that. But everybody's different. And so mm. I think in terms of how you show up, you know, we talk about these communication styles of an accommodator and an aggressor. And I feel like the aggressor might be better at, you know, holding that boundary and inviting someone to the table and engaging in conversation. But if you're an accommodator, I don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful to call everyone to the same action when it comes to loving your enemy, because they may not have the capacity to hold that boundary. They, they have a history of trauma or uh, you know family system where they're just going to agree to things they don't really want. And they're going to agree or they're going to get you know a, verbally abused and just sit there and take it. And that's not being loving to yourself. Um, and it can't, again, cross that boundary. So whatever it means, I think it has to hold love of self and love of enemy in that tension. And I think the, it, get ex, it gets expressed in many ways. And, you know, some people will love their enemy through uh, policy changes and through advocate uh, advocacy work and through, um, you know, doing that at a distance, you know, maybe it's sending money to your enemy for some very practical need, but I don't think it has to be engaging in this uh, deeper relationship if that's harmful to you. Hmm. That's really great. Um, and, and it does require a lot of nuance. Um, it requires a lot of, um, in order to not destroy oneself by loving one's enemy, if, if they're your enemy, they probably don't have your best interests at heart. Unless they too are looking to this, <laughs> to looking to this passage and saying, uh, "Okay, so how am I going to grapple with this?" Uh, and I think it's really easy to politicize uh, uh, certain notions of loving your enemy and and how that might look. Do you think that this is a call for pacifism, like in in an anti-war kind of sense? I mean, I would say this: I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind mm -hmm. when this is happening. Other, other than to say, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. We have that in the Beatitudes at the beginning of this section. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think Jesus doesn't have in mind specifically like just war theory or, you know, a pacifism in this global scale. But I don't think it's wrong for people to extrapolate from that and, and to have that position. Again, I think this idea of uh, nonviolence is complicated. Right. Um, and I think it takes nuance to understand that. I think what we, we should be, uh, I think Jesus is calling us to peace. Hmm. That for sure. Um, however, I think just like all of the moral dilemmas and conundrums we have today that they didn't have in the New Testament, we have to think wisely about how we institute that, that principle here. Hmm. The, um, the line about, uh, the questioning what your reward would be for for loving those that love you, of course. What do you have as a reward? Uh, and then the alter the um, you know the alternative being so you got to love everybody. Don't just love the people that love you. Even the even the worst of us can do that. Anybody can love their loved ones. Uh, it takes a special person. It takes a very giving person to to love their enemies. Uh, is there a is there a reward for loving your enemy? 
is this is the reward uh, eternal salvation and 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 uh, you know eternity in paradise with God, or is the, is there something else that that Jesus is hinting at here? Yeah, I mean Jesus isn't. I did, Jesus doesn't really ever come out right and talk about that in terms of, you know, I think sometimes uh, for people, they can confuse when Jesus says the kingdom of God, they think of that as heaven, but that's mm. not actually how Jesus uses that phrase. Um, and so I think it's important, again, this isn't, this isn't a, a tit for tat sort of setup. Um, and that's not being set up that way. And, you know, for whatever reason, this reminds me of um, Ecclesiastes. And I think, you know, Kohelet is a good example of here. So Kohelet being the, the narrator of the book of Ecclesiastes, who says uh, the whole book is kind of like everything's meaningless. And he says things like, well, who knows if we actually go up to see God when we die? Like maybe we just go down to be with the animals. Like who knows? We don't know. Yeah. Um, but yet the conclusion of the book is still like, eh, I still think it's probably worthwhile to follow God. Like. <laughs> And I love that because, again, that's a book that challenges this theological calculus idea in there in our Bible, in the Old Testament even, um, starting to challenge this idea of like, oh, it's maybe not tit for tat. If I do this, I get that. And here are the rewards and that sort of thing. And again, I don't think Jesus is advocating for that uh, tit for tat. It's I think Jesus is often using a rhetorical device to talk about this coming kingdom of God's reign on earth it's almost always on earth um, that God will reign and set up just systems of government and just systems of society and culture. And to uh, get your reward is to be participating in a more just and peaceful world. Hmm. You know, th there is always uncertainty in, in faith. I think a lot of people that um, have written off belief entirely, uh, be it in Christianity or any other religion, have done so because they just can't, in their heart, they can't believe. They can't, they don't get it. They can't wrap their whole mind around it because uh, for whatever reason, while they were growing up in the church that they were a part of when they were younger, or maybe just what they heard through other uh, people who had faith was that you must know, you must be certain, you must have uh, have this notion that, that, that um, this is how God is and this is how God behaves. This is what Jesus said. Uh, this is how we are to take that interpretation. And here's where we're going after we die. Um, it's so freeing. Uh, it, it's a, I mean, it's a sort of uh, religious agnosticism that a lot of people don't give themselves liberty to explore. Um, not to say I don't know at all, and so I'm not even going to bother looking. But to say it's okay that I don't know. There's a lot of things that I don't know. I I could uh, you know I couldn't even begin to tell you about any kind of mathematics or biology or anything like that. There's a lot of stuff about this world that I don't know. Let alone another realm. Let alone uh, the the uh, the eternal God, the Creator. Uh, of course I don't know. Does that mean it's not worth it to believe? Does that mean that? Um, you brought up the phrase, the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God, um, that I think people do use specifically often to say, oh, well, the kingdom of God is not here, it's elsewhere. Uh, and, and, and what a, what a poor understanding of what creation is for, for someone to think that way. The kingdom of God is here. We are part of this kingdom. Now, is, is this our eternal resting place? I don't know. 
Uh, is this what will heaven take place on earth after the rev? You know, as the revelation said, uh, will heaven take place elsewhere? Will be drawn away from this world, or are we transforming this world? So much of what Jesus says in um, in his very brief time, you know, for for someone who was who was only on earth for such a brief period. Uh, it's amazing what uh, he, he really wanted to improve the world. He, he didn't just want to save people. He didn't just want to bring more people into the, the chosen family, the people of God. He didn't just want others to know uh, how good God is. He wanted to make this world a more peaceful and equitable place right now. Uh, and, and so in that way, this, this message sure is, is discussing what, what, uh, toll hate uh, what the toll that hate takes on your yourself, your physical health, your mental health, and your soul. But he's also saying that if if we can manage to do this, think about what else we can accomplish in this world. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I uh, I did want to harp a little bit on his his use of tax collectors as an example of people that. Well, they, you know, they, even the tax collectors can do this. Um, for someone who is hanging out with tax collectors, why would he single uh, that group of people out? Why do you, why do you think he used it? Of course, like uh, in, in this sociological context, in, in his society, people would have understood that reference better. But um, is, is there another way that he could have gone about making this point than, than pointing out people that became his friends? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a good question. I actually had never thought about that before, but I, I think it is appropriate in the context uh, because the people who are listening to him would have seen the tax collectors as, uh, I mean, they were traitors of the state, and that's that's important to recognize. They were they were uh, turncoats, right? They they were going after their own people to collect taxes for the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was about as low as you could be, as disloyal as you could be to the Jewish people. And and so he's saying, even the people that you you despise are doing that. And then that's kind of the, I think that's the, the spirit in which he's saying it. And again, maybe we would say maybe now Jesus like, don't call out people and call them the lowest of the lows. Like, you know, that's, if you're going to be like, you know, with them and loving them. But I think in the time and place, that's, uh, you know, this is early on in Jesus's ministry. The tax collectors don't seem to mind. They seem to want to hang out with Jesus later on. So maybe sure. they chastised, maybe they taught him later, like, hey, you know, don't use this in your illustrations. Please. So like, <laughs> hey, okay, yeah. I'm doing the best that I can over here. <laughs> he's, you know? he's like, okay, I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, we know Jesus learned. So that's good. So, and it, 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 he didn't really, um, he didn't condone what they were doing, right? Even though he was, you know, a party to them and, and welcomed them in and, and dined with them and, and drank with them, he wasn't saying, Oh, it's great what you I think it's great what you guys are doing. Keep doing it. It's it's amazing. Everybody's got a task in this world. This is just what you're called to do. Uh, you know, his idea was bring these people in, show them God's love, and then maybe they will turn away from what they do to harm other people. Um, and maybe they'll learn to love. Uh, I don't think collecting taxes is is um necessarily uh, an evil thing inherently. At this time, it was certainly sinister. Uh, the way they went about it was very selective, and, and the way it was enforced was usually a form of some kind of prejudice. Um, do you have any final thoughts um, how this ties into the overall message of your book, um, and, and do you want to um, 
you know, relay anything to, to the folks out, out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it is central because the, the point of the book, I mean, the subtitle is how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus. And so it's this idea that, uh, that we have to get people, um, that we're justified in treating people differently, depending on whether they agree with us or don't agree with us, whether they're in our camp or not in our camp, we can easily justify our behavior because we think we're standing up for truth and for love by deriding or belittling or calling out the people who don't agree with us. And there are better ways to love people well than just calling them out. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, looking at the broader context of Jesus's life, like you said, that the call was to love one another in a sacrificing way. And so if it doesn't cost us anything, it might not be the most loving thing to do. Uh, yet again, it can't cost us so much that it is self-harming or, um, you know, we have to have boundaries with that. But, you know, it, it's really this call that speaking the truth in love, I don't think, well, I just, I'm pretty sure about this, is not, is not okay to weaponize. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what we do because when we say, I treat people differently based on the camps. What we're saying is I don't agree with you, meaning yeah. I have the truth. You don't have the truth. And it, and because of that, I'm justified in treating you differently. And ultimately, I mean, the philosophers, the ethical philosophers, whether they're Christian or not, would agree you don't get to the utopia that you want um, with a dystopian means. And so if we think that the the ends justify the means, that we can treat people in a way that's inconsistent with the kingdom of God that we imagine, um, then we're shooting ourselves. We're undermining the very kingdom that we're saying that we want to establish. Hmm. That's beautiful. And and again, this passage isn't necessarily saying, here's how you love, but uh, certainly there are some things that we can kind of parse out on our own. And, and um, so, so many people that uh, view Christianity from the outside think of... Uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, uh, you know, uh, fiery preachers giving um, sermons about damnation, more people, and I wish, I, I, and I think more and more as it's happening, will see uh, Christians today as people who at their heart have love as a central guiding principle. Uh, more people should read your book, uh, books like uh, Tom Ord's new book about love as well. Um, y- you know, the, the more that we get this message out that Christianity is not about hellfire and brimstone, it's actually about love and compassion and, um, and acceptance, uh, the more people I think will will try to figure out what this Jesus guy is all about. And, um, and I think he's great. I don't know about you, but I, I think he's pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any social media you want to plug or anything like that before we um, before we oh, wrap sure. up? Sure. I mean, you can just look me up, uh, Jared Bias, on on all the socials or just, you know, uh, a lot of the work we do, I do with Pete Enns at thebiblefornallpeople.com. Mm-hmm. And and if you haven't checked out uh, the, that podcast, please do. The Bible for Normal People is a wonderful show. It's a great resource. It's very interesting. It's very thought-provoking. And, and I think it does a lot of good for a lot of people. So uh, thank you again. Uh, for coming on. This was um, so cool. I I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. It was great. Thank you. Uh, This week's poem is by Emily Bronte. It's called Love and Friendship. Love is like the wild rose briar, friendship like the holly tree. The holly is dark when the rose briar blooms, but which will bloom most constantly? The wild rose briar is sweet in spring. Its summer blossoms scent the air. Yet wait till winter comes again, and who will call the wild briar fair? 
Then scorn the silly rose wreath now, and deck thee with the holly's sheen, that when December blights thy brow, he still may leave thy bond. Thanks, everybody. Don't give